Welcome to the Aurora Cornerstone Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope today's message is an encouragement to you. Today I want to talk about some promises that came out of what took place 2,000 years ago. And there were a number of things that took place around the crucifixion. So you, we've just read the story of the arrest, the uh, process, the crucifixion, the things around the crucifixion and him being crucified. Around the crucifixion of Christ, if we were to have some still pictures, I, I chose not to try to put some still pictures up on this because our imaginations will always trump over a picture. Around the crucifixion of Christ, the disciples wanted to sleep. Remember in the garden, they just wanted to go to sleep. Around the crucifixion, Herod the king wanted a show. Around the crucifixion, Pilate wanted out. He was in a catch-22 situation. And around the crucifixion, the soldiers wanted blood. And so the story picks up in our text. And so they scourged, and so they whipped Jesus. The whip. I did pull a picture up of the whip. The whip, to what we understand, consisted of a leather, leather straps with balls of lead, sometimes hooks on the end. The scourger's goal, he had one goal, wasn't complicated, beat the accused within a fraction of their life. That was the goal. Don't kill him. So they had those there watching, and they were allowed to go up to 39 strikes. Oftentimes, they never made 39 because they wouldn't have survived 39. That's how severe, think of it, 39 strikes. It wouldn't be uncommon that they would not even survive that. They would be filleted on the scourger's post. We need to take a moment, just think about that, because Jesus didn't deserve it. I did, though. I deserved it, my sin. You did. He didn't. He did it for us. Thank you, Lord. 39 lashes were allowed, seldom needed. A centurion would monitor the prisoner's status. So it's safe to say Jesus was near death. When they finished, they took all 39. He took all 39. His hands were then untied. He would slump to the ground. The whipping was the first deed of the crucifixion. That was a part of a crucifixion. Whoever was to be crucified in this situation would be scourged. The other deed of the crucifixion was the actual crucifixion. Frequently, they would then make and mock the person crucified would carry the cross to the site to be crucified. Whipping, crucifixion. That's the order. Whipping, the crucifixion. Whipping, the crucifixion. But in the story here, Matthew takes great pain to talk about there was a second act that is not a part of a normal crucifixion. A second act took place in this story. Whipped, yes, That's their orders. Crucified, yes, that's their orders, the soldier's orders. I'm going to talk about the second act here in just a second because the second act is really about 
what we need to talk about because in that act, we see the promises of God begin to unfold. Um, his back would have been torn. The soldiers would put the crossbeam on his shoulders. Jesus could not make it to the place of the skull, they called it. He couldn't make it. He was too weak. Although he survived 39 stripes, he could not survive the trip to the cross, the trip to the skull, the mount of skull, with the cross carrying it. I'm going to suggest I don't, and I don't think we should fault any of the soldiers that day. They were following orders, except, except. It's really hard to understand what they did in addition to the orders. This is where we pick it up. Matthew chapter 27, verse 27. I want to pick this up again. Follow with me. We have it here in front of you. Matthew 27, 27. The soldiers assigned to governor, assigned to Assigned to the governor, took Jesus into the governor's palace and got the entire brigade together. Here, note this. Together for some fun. Now, there's an expression people use today, oh, that was fun. And often people, we, I've discovered fun has a very wide spectrum of what some consider fun, I don't consider fun. And what probably I consider fun, some of you wouldn't consider fun. Pick this up. At the end of verse 27, the entire brigade got together for some fun. They're going to have some fun that day. It's kind of a boring job, I guess. I don't know. Crucifixion, I can't imagine that. So verse 28, they stripped him and dressed him in red toga. It's the robe. They plaited a crown from branches of a thorn bush and set it on his head. They put a stick in his right hand for a scepter. Remember, I preached last Sunday, what stick do you have in your hand? They put a stick in his hand, and then they knelt before him. These are the soldiers. Jesus is almost dead. They knelt before him in mocking reverence, saying, Bravo, King of the Jews. Bravo. Verse 30. Then they spit on him, not one spit on him. The soldiers spit on him. They spit on him, hit him on the head with the stick. The stick was the scepter. Verse 31, when they had had their fun, they took off the toga, put his own clothes back on him, then they proceeded out to the crucifixion. Their assignment was simple. Take the Nazarene to the hill and kill him. That was their assignment. But they had other ideas that day. They wanted to have fun first. This is above and beyond. Whip him and crucify him. They wanted to have some fun. So they proceeded to do all these things. I'm going to focus on the first here. They proceeded to spit on a half-dead man. Spitting isn't intended to hurt your body. Spitting can't hurt your body. Spitting is intended to degrade your soul. And it does degrade your soul. I don't know if anybody here has ever been spit on on purpose for that reason. And I hope you haven't spit on another. But that's the purpose. You degrade someone by spitting. You can't hurt them physically with the spit but you will degrade their soul. The purpose to spit is to degrade. They, they multiple, 
spit on him. They spit on him. The soldiers were elevating themselves at his expense. They felt pretty big that day by making Christ look cheap and small. They spit on him. Now, I hope you've never spit on somebody literally for that reason, but maybe not that way, but I guarantee you have spit on someone. When you have gossiped about someone, you degraded their soul. When you slandered someone, you spit on them. Not, not true? Am I, am I pushing the envelope maybe on this one? No, you spit on them. purpose of spit is not to hurt the body. The purpose of the spit is to degrade you. You don't actually have to let it leave your mouth and hit someone in the face. You do it with words. You can do it with the rolling of eyes. We spit on people. We do. We degrade, make ourselves look big, them small. And uh, it's what the soldiers did that day. And when you and I do the same, when we do it to another, we've done it to Jesus. Matthew 25, 40 in the Message Bible, it says, whenever you did one of these things to someone overlooked or ignored, that was me. You did it to me, Jesus said. So when I have slandered or misspoken about another person intentionally, I spit on Christ. So I can be hard on those soldiers that day, but guess what? I've done it too. Sorry. And so have you. As you've done it unto the least, my brother, and you've done it unto me, Jesus said. Why do we do these things? <laughs> and I want to just say, this is I, I want to just nail this maybe down this morning. We do it for the three-letter word in the English language. Sin. We are sinners. That's why we do those things. Sin does that and a lot worse, but it doesn't have to be. You don't have to kill somebody to sin. You don't have to commit adultery to sin. You have sinned when you have done these against another. We've all sinned. Romans 6, and it says the wages of sin is death. We all are headed to death. And this is the amazing part of today, Good Friday. That's why it's Good Friday. Because the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. Praise God. Praise God. So sin causes us to spit on another and causes us to have thus spit on Jesus. I want you to show you something. What, Jesus, what's the, what does Jesus do with spit? I guess if I was spit on, one of the first things I would do is I would quickly wipe it off. I want to suggest Jesus carries our spit to the cross. God could have deemed it otherwise that day. Did you note? Nowhere in any of the gospel writings, nowhere do you see anyone offering a towel to wipe his spit away. You don't read it. The spit went from the place of having fun all the way up to the cross. He took the spit with him to the cross. God had plans. I mean, after all, Jesus, when his throat was dry, 
People were offering him a drink for his parched throat. When he couldn't carry the cross, they gave him Simon to help carry the cross, but no one offered to mop the spit from his face. God could have, but he didn't. Angels were but a prayer away. The Bible tells us that. They could have wiped the spit off of Christ. This is the Son of God's face. They could have done it. They would have done it. All Jesus had to do was say the word and the angels would immediately have attended to him. But for some reason, the one who chose the nails chose the saliva. Along with the crucifixion for man, he bore our spit. Why? Why? And I want to suggest, and this just excites me today, could it be that he sees the beauty within the spitter? He sees something in those who spit on him, and he took it to the cross. Jesus exchanges our dark side for his white side. Jesus changes places with us. And the sinless one now takes on the face of the sinner because our faces are covered with that. He takes on our faith face so that we, the sinners, could take on the face of God. Wow, he took our spit. That's why the writers made sure we got the whole story. The whole story was he bore not just the whipping, he bore the spit. So God had a promise in the spit. And the promise was he sees the beauty of you. Receive it today. He sees the beauty in the spitter. And he took that with him and nailed it to the cross. Thank you, Lord. I want to share a second thing. God, he not only had a promise through the spit, he had a promise, he had a promise through the sign. There was a sign that was posted on the cross. Signs. I mean, what are signs for? Signs are to give you some direction, aren't they? Uh, we were very aware when we were down a couple of weeks ago, down visiting our 22-month beautiful granddaughter in Florida. And I know I always pull out pictures at this time. I don't have them on me. But down in Florida, in the area they were, Port Charlotte, to Gorda, that area was at the center of that big hurricane that went through last fall. And even yet, when we were down there and we were traveling, uh, stop signs are still missing. <laughs> you know, and you have to kind of know the lay of the land or you're going right, you're driving through because the, the signs, most of the signs blew down. And there's still many of them blowing down. Like I would think one of the primary things you do is put the stop signs back up again. But they still haven't, like six months later. I don't know. Maybe they ran out of stop signs. Um, Signs are to give you direction. There's been times where Lori has asked, uh, uh, you know why I'm upset? And I go, well, honey, why are you upset? Well, you missed the sign. No. And God knows we miss signs. We miss signs. Maybe that's why he's given us so many signs, because we have a tendency to miss signs. The rainbow after the flood signifies God's covenant. He wouldn't do it again. Circumcision for those that would bring the good news in the early days was God's sign of his chosen. The stars at night, saw that last night, looked up, saw the stars, just shows us the size of his family. That was the sign he gave to Abraham. Communion is a sign of his death. 
Baptism is a sign of our birth. Signs. Signs symbolize greater spiritual truth. The most potent sign, however, is the sign I believe found on the cross. Literally, the sign that was nailed to the cross. It was trilingual, hand-painted, Roman-commissioned sign. Let me read the sign. John chapter 19 tells us what it says. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. Wouldn't you be glad you didn't have to read all three of those, Daniel? Three languages. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I'm king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. There's a sign placed over the head of Jesus. There's a promise in that sign. Why does the wording so trouble the people? They were really bugged by what it said. The others didn't have the sign, the one on the left, the one on the right, but Jesus had a sign. They were really bothered, the people, the soldiers. They were really bothered. They wanted to change the wording. The Jews didn't like it. So why does Pilate refuse to change it? Why are the words written in three languages? And that sign is mentioned in all four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's mentioned in all four. The sign's significant. Could it be, could it be, that this piece of wood, the sign, is a picture of God's devotion? It's a picture of it. A symbol of his passion that he is committed to telling the entire world about his son. He's committed to it. It's a reminder, that sign, that God will do whatever it takes to make sure the message of salvation, the sign to salvation, is received by everyone. That's a promise. That's a promise. In a few moments, we're going to be praying for, we've had people in the last month placing the names of loved ones and friends who may not know Christ as Lord, have not understood his love for them. And, uh, and this table at the front, I've taken them out, I've placed it across the table. Later today, we're going to spend a moment and pray for them. We've been praying for them for this last month, and up to this weekend, I had committed we would do this. And God is committed. God, you need to hear this. God is committed that everyone will hear the good news. He's committed to it. It's a promise. It's a promise. And I stand on that promise. You stand on that promise. We, good Friday is a promise of the sign. The sign on the cross is a true picture of God's devotion. His devotion. It's a symbol of his passion to tell the world of his son. It's a reminder that God will do whatever it takes to share with you the message of this sign. I suggest the sign reveals two fundamental truths of God reaching the world. I want to draw your attention. The first part of the truth is Pilate. Think about this. Pilate. Pilate's the one who put it up there. I want to suggest this. There is no person God will not use. If he uses Pilate, 
He'll use anyone. Note how quickly the sign bears fruit that day. Pilate puts it on the cross, but immediately fruit comes from that sign. There's a criminal on his right, a criminal on his left. Moments from his own death, one of the criminals turns to Jesus, Luke chapter 23, and the criminal says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your what? Kingdom. Where did he come up with the word kingdom, do you think? He read the sign. King of the Jews. First convert. Pilate was instrumental. Do you love it? God used Pilate, one of the most wicked men in the day, to put a sign up, and within minutes, the first convert comes into the kingdom. <laughs> I love it. Just love it. Promise God will use anyone to reach with the good news. Remember me when you come into the kingdom. The first convert that day. Wow. What an interesting choice of words. The criminal could have said, save me. The criminal could have begged for mercy. But instead, he appealed to the king. King of the Jews. The sign was the first tool used to proclaim the message of the cross. And countless others have followed. From the printing press back a few hundred years ago, where now Bibles are everywhere. And the message is proclaimed around the world. He continues to use signs. The printing press, I'm going to suggest the radio. Then it was television. Stadiums were filled. Crusades. Social media. Churches. The sign is continuing on. I take responsibility, for good or for bad, for the sign that we have out in front of our church. Make sure I have a saying on that just drops a nugget of, Pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ, pointing to Christ. I do that every week. Change it up. We get some interesting comments. He will use any means so that no one has the excuse they didn't get the sign. The sign. Pilate that day did not intend to spread the gospel. In fact, the sign said in so many words, it was in so many words saying, this is what becomes of a Jewish king. That's what Pilate wanted it to say. This is what becomes of a Jewish king. This is what Rome does with anybody who thinks they are the king, the king of this nation's a slave, crucified criminal. And if such is to be a king, what must the nation be whose king he is? That's what Pilate was trying to say. Pilate meant the sign to be a threat. Oh, but God used it for another purpose. The point is, there is no one God won't use. Praise God. There's no person God will. He used Pilate. He will use any person. Praise God. And he will do that for those that we hold before the Lord. I want to share the second part. There is no language God will not speak when it comes to the sign. Did you notice it was in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek? Every language possible. Not one person who would have looked on that sign would say, I don't know what it says, because it was in all three languages. That's amazing. Hebrew, Latin, Greek. Hebrew was the language of Israel. Latin was the language of the Romans. And Greek was the language of Greece, the culture, and much of our New Testament is in Greek, much of the New Testament. God had a message, and the message is in every language. Every tongue, Christ is king. There is no language God will not use to reach you. You know, I'm going to suggest what language has he been speaking to you? 
Sometimes the language is family turmoil. And all of a sudden, we're starting to listen. Sometimes the language is difficulty at the workplace, and he's speaking to you. Sometimes the language is a reversal, a health, a call from your doctor, from the test that you got back. He will use any language in order to get the good news to you. It's not just different tongues. It's different ways he's communicating. He gets your attention. If I was to ask how many here came to Christ in a time of difficulty, many hands would go up because he used that language to get your attention. You are not going to live forever. You need help. You need Christ. And maybe there are those here today. Today, he is speaking to you in a language I hope that we're hearing, a language to come to Christ, come to the cross, Come to the place of forgiveness where your sins have already been provided and carried. Now you need to receive it. The sign. The sign. What language is he speaking to you today? So I want to suggest here's a couple of things around the cross of Christ. First of all, the promise is through the spit. He sees beauty in the spitter. Secondly, at the cross, there's a promise of the sign. He is speaking to us in a language all of us can hear. No one is except. You say, well, that person never understood. Oh, no. He's been speaking in a language to them. He promises to do so. Thirdly, there's the promise of the path. The most notorious road today is called the Via Della Rosa. The Via Della Rosa is called the Way of the Sorrows. I put a picture up here. Not necessarily the best picture, but according to tradition, uh, this is the route from Pilate's Hall to Calvary. And today they are, they will have already gone through in Israel the 14 stations on the Via Della Rosa. We don't know if that's actually the road. It's our best guess. Jerusalem was destroyed as a city 40 years after the crucifixion. It was leveled. They tried to rebuild it, and 40 years after that, it was destroyed again, 135 AD. So Jerusalem's been destroyed twice. Totally leveled. So we're not really sure what that road looks like because, well, there's no signs there to tell us. But let me suggest the path didn't begin in the court of Pilate. The path to the cross did not begin the day Pilate said crucify him. The path to the cross began in the halls of heaven. When God said, I will send my son. To save this world. That's where it began. The crucifixion past did not start with Pilate. It started with God saying, I love you. And I want to bring you back home. And so from heaven it began the pathway all the way to the cross. There's a song we used to sing. Some of you know it. Lord, I lift your name on high. We come to the chorus of that song and we're not going to maybe sing it here. Well, maybe we will sing it. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. It wasn't Pilate. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. From the earth to the cross, my debt to pay. From the cross to the grave, from the grave, back home to the sky. So, Lord, I lift your name on high. The Father began his journey when he left his home in search of you. Armed with nothing more than a passion to win your heart, he came looking for you. His desire was singular, to bring his kids home. And the Bible has a word for this. It's called reconciliation. 
reconciliation. It's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that God was reconciling to reconciling the word the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Here's the point. The path of the cross tells us exactly how far God will go to get you back. All the way from heaven to the cross. And he's calling you back today. Any here who have wandered from God, come home. There's a promise when he spit because he sees beauty in the spitter. There's promise in the sign. He will use whatever language to get you. There's promise in the path because he's gone from heaven to get you. Now, the last one I want to share, I see in the crucifixion, I see in this Good Friday, God's promise through the wine-soaked sponge. John chapter 19, it says this. Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. Verse 29, a jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips, uh, there's a whole story behind the hyssop plant. Do you remember in the Passover when they took the blood and they put it on their mantles in order for the Passover? It was from a hyssop plant. Uh, anyway, so they took a sponge, soaked it in a hyssop plant, lifted it to Jesus' lips, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus, he's, he's seconds from death when this happens. When he received the drink, he says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and died. This is the final act of Jesus' life. The final act, I am thirsty. I drink seconds before he dies. Seconds before he dies. He was thirsty long before this. <laughs> he was thirsty six hours before this. He identifies thirst at this moment, but he was long thirsty. You don't get to this place without being parched. Have you ever been severely wounded? You get thirsty real fast. It's part of the shock. He was thirsty. His throat was parched hours before all of this. In the concluding measure of his earthly composition, we hear the sounds of a thirsty man. And through his thirst, through a sponge and a jar of cheap wine, he leaves his final appeal. Listen to this. He is saying in that few last seconds, he is saying as loud as he can say it, you can trust me. You'd think that if Jesus, the Son of God, was thirsty, you would have done something about it long before seconds before his death. If he's thirsty, why just seconds before dying? I mean, Jesus, he could have done it. Isn't he the one who turned jugs of water into wine? He could have changed it on the cross. Isn't Jesus who with one word banished the rain and calmed the waves of the seas? He's master over it all. Therefore, why the question, why does Jesus endure thirst on the cross? Because he did. He could have asked for this six hours before. Six hours before, actually, Mark chapter 15 it says, they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine. It was part of the custom. Offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it. He was part six hours, but he didn't take it. He only took it seconds before he died. 
So why did Jesus endure that parchment? Mm. Why? Before the nail was pounded, a drink was offered. Yet Jesus refused because it was a sedative. There are sedative properties in it. It would somewhat numb your senses. And Jesus refused to be stupefied by drugs, and he opted to feel the full force. Listen, he opted to feel the full force of suffering that day. Why? Because, I'll answer that, Jesus knew you would have to go through the full force of suffering. Think about this. You would go through it and you couldn't have an avenue out. You wouldn't be able to lessen your pain. And he knew that. And so if he was to truly take your place, he had to go through everything you would go through because you would not have an option to get out of it either. Wow. Wow. That's why people, why cannabis is going through the, through the roof these days. People want to lessen their pain. Why alcohol is a big problem. It's a big problem. It's why people want to not suffer before they die. They just want to pick their death themselves and die quickly. It's why, uh, it's why we busy ourselves. It's why we pursue entertainment the way we do. It's why promiscuity. We, we are trying to deal with pain. We're trying to deal with pain. And here's the point. He knew, he knew you would be weary he knew you would be disturbed. He knew you would be angry. He knew of those coming who would be grief-stricken and hungry. He knew of those who suffered physically, whose stomachs would never be filled with food. He knew those who lost loved ones, whose parents abandoned them. He knew those who would live life with pain, marriages busted up, kids falling away, parents rejecting. He knew all that was coming. Sin. Sin. He knew it. He knew you would face pain. The pain of a soul can never be dumbed by a drug. And Jesus understood that day. Why didn't he take it six hours before? Because he refused to stupefy what you would go through. He understands. That's why on the cross, he says, you can trust me. You can trust me with your pain. You can trust me with your hurt. You can trust me with your brokenness. He knew the world would face pain. Pain. And wouldn't after all, if he lacked understanding pain, would that not keep you from him? It keeps us from others today. I mean, think about it. If you're discouraged at your financial state, and you wish you were able to figure out how to get your budget on track, are you going to go to a billionaire to ask them how to do it? Probably not. You're going to go to somebody who's been through similar difficulty in finances. You go to somebody who relates to what you're going through. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We don't have a priest who is out of touch with our reality. He's been through weakness and testing. He's experienced it all, but all but the sin. So let's walk right up to him and get what he is so ready to give. Take the mercy, accept the help. He understands and he says, you can trust me. Why did the throat of heaven grow raw? 
so that we would know that he understands. And all who struggle would hear the invitation, come unto me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gets it. Jesus endured the thirst from the cross just to lay one more plank to sturdy a bridge so that you will cross over that bridge to him. He wants to make sure you get there. Jesus' final act then is a warm word for the cautious today. You can trust me, he says. So, today, the cross. I want to just present these promises. God promised that through the spit, he sees your beauty. He promised that through the sign, he will breach every language to make sure you know the good news. And that even today. God's promise is through the path. He will go from whatever length so that you will hear the message. And he gave a promise through the wine-soaked sponge. He understands your pain and struggle. Trust him. Trust him. If you're here this morning and you've not trusted him, you've not fully surrendered your life to Jesus, would you today make this a good Friday for you? Accept it. Place your trust in his hands. Maybe today, maybe you have followed. You've made that decision to follow Jesus. You've surrendered your life. You're a follower of Christ. But maybe you've wandered. Today, would you just reaffirm your position with him? Isn't he a wonderful Savior? Isn't he a glorious Lord? I hope I've been able to, in some measure, portray that today. Because that's Good Friday. That's what he did. That's what he's doing. Thanks for listening to the Aurora Cornerstone podcast. Remember to subscribe. For more information about our church and our ministries, visit auroracornerstone.ca.